everybody. I hope everyone's doing well. Another installment of the Plague Diaries. That was the editors with Munich. According to their uh, Wikipedia page, um, that record came out in uh, 2005. Damn, that seems like a fucking lifetime ago, man. Yeah, that's uh, that was an interesting time. Um, you know, there was Interpol, and I feel like uh, the major label world was signing a bunch of bands like this. You know, these kind of Joy Division, post-punk, worshipping, you know, bands that can be sold to regular people out in the suburbs, you know. And, um, yeah, the editors were one of those bands that I thought were pretty good. I uh, found out about them. So, I mean, it must have been 2005, 2006. There was a studio in Brooklyn in the uh, neighborhood known as Dumbo, directly under the Manhattan and Brooklyn Bridge. So uh, that um, Brooklyn Bridge overpass, sorry, that's the O in Dumbo. Um, yeah, I was doing a session at this studio with Hot Cross. And uh, the neighborhood's a lot different now than it was back then. Actually, I experienced the very distinct eras of Dumbo. Like back in the late 90s, it was a, this desolate no man's land run by gangs and there was like uh crime and they're finding dead bodies things like that i mean you know people getting killed in the streets the mob dumping dead bodies you know they would find people with no fingers and you know their teeth knocked out like you know real 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 noir new york noir type stuff you know then slowly as gentrification started creeping into brooklyn there was uh, this kind of sweet spot when it was still pretty sketchy at night, but then there was all these artists living in these um, loft buildings. And then it turned into more gentrification, and now uh, there's, you know, there's a WeWorks facility there. There's, there's a uh, Starbucks, I believe. You know, there's all these you know, kind of professional-type people living in that neighborhood. I guess um, there was a train, the, the train station, is that York Street? Yeah. The York Street F train stops in that neighborhood. And uh, so you can get into the city. It's like the, the last stop in Brooklyn before you go into Manhattan. So real good if you work in the city to live there. So everyone has these like overpriced, you know, shitty apartments that they live in. And uh, briefly, I was installing closets last year for a few months. And I remember... I had a couple of jobs in that area and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, man, look at the people that live here now. Totally different. You know, back in the day, it was a way different scenario. Actually that train station, uh, the York street train station. I remember real sketchy because there was one way in and you went on this long platform, but there was no e exit on the other side of the platform. So, um, you know, someone could be waiting for you as you walked all the way down the platform and there was nowhere for you to go. So I, I would oftentimes wonder how many people got murdered or like robbed or raped or whatever down there. And, uh, yeah, I don't think the people that live there now think about those things for some reason. But anyway, there was a studio 
working on the, with Hot Cross, and right across the street from the studio was this uh, organic juice place. And uh, I went in there. I wanted to get a smoothie. And this, like, really, really good-looking lady was working behind the counter. And uh, this song, Munich, was playing. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, I was single at the time. I'm like, uh, who is this? And she's like, oh, it's the editors. And I'm like, you know, did you, did you pick this song? Did you put, it, put this on? And she's like, yeah, you know, it's a great record. And that was it. Didn't go anywhere after that. But I do remember going into the, uh, you know, the juice bar pretty much every day. And I only saw her like maybe one or two times. Um, one time I actually was in the van. I was sitting in the van. And uh, I was kind of, you know, this sounds really creepy, but like wanted to see if she was working because I was thinking about going in there and talking to her. Uh, but then she came out and she met some dude. And I don't know if she saw me or not, like sitting in the van, kind of eyeing, eyeing the juice bar. But after that, I figured, uh, you know, better let it go. <laughs> um, yeah, the things that pop into your mind, man, when you spend all this time alone, isolated from everybody. Um, I just wrapped up doing uh, an episode of Metal Matters with Randy, and we were talking about a bunch of music. And uh, it was a cool episode because it wasn't really about anything in particular. It was about just bands that people should check out. And he mentioned the, Ca the Casper Brosman Massacre. And specifically, uh, Engine Kid, Casper Brotsman, <clears throat> and this band Otis that uh, I used to play in back in the 90s. And um, that's when Randy and I actually first met, according to him. A lot of people have no idea about that band at all outside of a few, you know, older types that were in Boston in the early 90s. And, um, you know, musically, not my favorite thing that we did. Uh, it was the first band I actually did something with musically. Like I put the first band I put a record out with, the first band I toured with. Uh, the first time I went to Europe, um, you know, the first like legit rock style tour experience was in that band, you know, opening for, for people, supporting larger acts. Um, but the music and the experience of the band was just like, every, I feel like everyone in the band wanted to do something different. It was weird. It was, uh, you know, the singer, very talented guy, uh, very much kind of up his own ass when it comes to certain things. And he was hoping, I think, to capitalize on the explosion of Nirvana and Alice in Chains and this stuff and, you know, become like this, uh, you know, rock star, like heartthrob kind of guy. But uh, for me personally, I just wanted to, like, you know, kick out the jams and make music and be brutal and do stuff that I, you know, was into. Uh, and then, yeah, there was a conflict and, you know, we ended up going our separate ways and met a lot of cool people doing the band and that allowed me to continue playing in bands. I formed Anodyne shortly after that. Um, but actually the thing that I've been thinking about the most and one of the coolest experiences I had, well, there's two really cool things that band did. And one of them was tour Europe with Fetus and Bark Market. And the other one 
is open for the Ramones for like a, I think it was like four dates and, uh, or three dates maybe. I have to check my, uh, my, my journals to see what, how exactly this thing went down. But, you know, it was the 90s and major labels were signing all these bands that normally have, you know, they were just in this frenzy of like trying to find a band that would break big and become like, you know, the next Nirvana or whatever. So we did not get signed to a major label, but, you know, some lawyer guy started um, poking his head into our business and uh, the label that we were on at the time, Cherry Disc, uh, had aspirations to be being a big player in the music world because they had put out the first Letters to Cleo record and Letters to Cleo had a, a massive hit. I think their song was on the show Beverly Hills 90210. And uh, the label had gotten a bit of money and Letters to Cleo moved on to have a, a career as a major label recording artist and all the fame and videos and all that kind of stuff um, that, you know, I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but good for them. You know, it's uh, not, not really the kind of music I would listen to, but, you know, it's pop, good pop music, you know what I mean? So, so there was like business being conducted at the label. Uh, other bands that were on Cherry Disc was uh, Tree, who, uh, I, you know, it's funny. I've always had a lot of respect for those guys, even though their music isn't really something I listen to. But I remember that band being a band that worked so fucking hard. And I had, I looked up to that, you know, and they were always touring. They, they were like road dogs. Like I would, they would be going on tour for like months at a time. And, and I guess, in a way, they inspired me to, to think about this thing as a, li- you know, a, a viable way of, of living a life, you know? It's like, you know, and I developed this whole thing of like, well, if I'm on the road all the time and I can't have a job, I can't hold a job down because I'm on the road all the time, then I guess I'm a professional musician. <laughs> you know, if the money I'm making is coming from playing gigs, then that makes me a pro, so... That, that was the birth of that mentality was in this band. And a lot of that had to do with Tree. And um, as far as I knew, they, they might still be a band to this day. Because I remember reading something. This is like probably about 10 years ago. I saw an interview with Dave, the singer. And um, they, was talking to, they were talking about going on tour. They were talking about doing a tour with like the ex-cops or something like that. And... Uh, and he was even saying then, he's like, you know, I just feel fortunate that we still can, can do this. You know, we're still able to go out and play and do shows and, and go on the road and, you know, once a year or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's like the lifer mentality. That's like, uh, you know, a good mindset to have. And, um, but yeah, they, I, you know, their music's cool. It's not, I don't, you know, I mean, to each his own, you know what I mean? But. That I, you have to give respect where respect is due. They had a fan base in New England. They made music that people liked. They enjoyed what they were doing. They played hard. And they, I don't, I wouldn't say that they were like virtuosos of playing their instruments, but they made it, they made it happen, you know? And it's like, you can't, you can't fuck with that. So they were on the label, uh, Toe Tag, 
uh, was on the label. Um, trying to think of who else. You know, Letters to Cleo had that one record. There was this band called Jocko Bono, who were not definitely not my cup of tea, but one guy in that band ended up going on to playing Weezer of all bands. And, uh, yeah. And then there was another band that was called Quintain Americana that, uh, I mean, they were, they were pretty cool, you know, like kind of like, um, a band that was heavily borrowing from bands like the Jesus Lizard and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, all, everyone was doing their thing, you know, and, as a result of everywhere, everyone doing their thing and, you know, we were working hard and all this stuff. And, and, uh, this, this guy, this lawyer guy shows up and he was like, yeah, let me, you know, I, I, I want to shop you guys to a major label and blah, 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 and this and that. Actually, the, I think the person that introduced me to him was this booking agent. And I'm getting around to the Ramones. Don't, so don't worry. It's just a roundabout way again to that part of the story. But, uh, we had gotten a booking agent called Premier Booking, and don't I don't even remember how they even found us. But I once again I have to look at my journals. Maybe maybe this is like the next storytelling thing I do is where I actually tell you the real facts. But Premier uh, was an old school like New York based booking agent they booked like led zeppelin they you know in the 70s they were like that kind of thing they were like a real deal like old og in the booking game um i can't remember this lady's name man but it was this lady who found us i think maybe she lived in boston at one point but now she lives in new york and uh and she was like yeah i'm interested in working with the band i, I think you guys potentially you know can can do something can do some real business you know and um she was the one who introduced me to this guy, the attorney, who I don't know if he actually ever did anything for us, but he allegedly was going to shop us to a major label. And the only cool thing that Premier did was get us uh, these dates with the Ramones. That was like the first thing that had ever, that's the first thing that they did. And I was like, oh man, this is like, you know, this is pretty damn good. You know, I never did anything like that before, you know. The Ramones. That was the first punk rock band I've ever heard. The first punk rock music in my life was the Ramones. So how cool is it that we're doing these like dates with them? Like a quote-unquote tour. Albeit a very short one, but we were going on tour with the Ramones. And um, yeah, I mean, I know, I know these days in like 2020, people might be like, oh, you know, the Ramones, whatever. You know, like the Ramones were the godfathers of this whole thing, man. You know, all these fucking bands in England wouldn't exist without the Ramones or the New York Dolls or Johnny Thunders or the Stooges. So let's get that straight. OK, so for me, being out there with the Ramones was like someone offering us to do dates with like the Stooges or something like that. It was the same. You know, you got to remember, this is the 90s. You know, there's less years. You know, those guys are all alive, obviously. And, you know, they Maybe you weren't, it was before like a hot topic version of life ensued. So I was like ecstatic. So we did these dates with the Ramones. You know, and I, and I remember when I was a young lad finding out about this kind of thing. That was literally 
the first thing that I heard heard that was called punk rock. There was this kid, Mike Katz, that um, he's a couple of years older than me. Uh, incredible drummer, um, especially back then when I had barely any idea how to play guitar. Um, he was somebody that I was like, man, this dude's like really like the coolest guy in, in school. You know, he was like, you know, this tall, thin, good looking guy with like long hair and leather jacket, you know. Um, one summer he went to California and he came back to Carmel, New York, where we all grew up and he was a punk. He changed from being a metal guy into being a punker. And, uh, the, the long hair, we cut it, cut it, he's got a short haircut. Um, you know, had a Ramones Road to Ruin album cover painted on his jacket. And he came back with this compilation called Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, which had Black Flag and The Feeders. Um, DOA was on that. Uh, it was like a, a seminal record. And then that was my introduction into the world of punk rock and hardcore music. And that was definitely a game changer. But yeah, Mike was doing gigs. He was in a band. Like you know, he was like doing like doing all kinds of shit that I only dreamed about doing. And you know, he had this band. They were playing gigs at bars. You know, he was like seventeen or whatever, and you know, playing somehow. You know, this is back in the eighties, man. Like shit was like crazy back then. I think the drinking age was eighteen. You know, and that was there's a, there's a documentary about twisted sister where they kind of talk about the the clubs in those in that era where uh 18 was drinking age there was a huge scene of bands playing covers you know twisted sister came out of that world you know doing like bowie covers and acdc and priest and all this stuff and then, oh yeah, every now and then they would sprinkle in like a, an original song, and that's that's kind of, I guess, how things were done in, in in the United States around that time. So, you know, Mike, I, I I associated him with all things cool. Like, you know, he had a band. He was a great drummer. He was like this really cool looking guy. He was into like the best coolest music, you know. And and he was someone that if you wanted to find out what you should be doing musically, you would look to what he was doing and then model that yourself after that. So he was into the Ramones. So I'm, I'm into the Ramones, you know, fuck, you know, it's how could I not be, you know? And I remember that was, you know, the beginning of that whole thing. And I was, you know, Susan, you know, Sheen is a punk rocker. The KKK took my baby away. Uh, you know, Blitzkrieg bop. You know, all those, all those classics, Rockaway Beach, you know, all that kind of shit. And then like, a, you know, almost pretty much like a decade later, I'm out on the road with these guys. And um, it was a little surreal, man. Like I was definitely starstruck. Um, you know, we up until then, you know, we, I never played in this, some big fucking venue. There was like, you know, the venues were like a thousand capacity, you know, which to me is a lot of people. And, um, you know, up until then, I'd played at places like the Rathskeller in Boston, you know, Bun Ratties, you know, which I guess might have been called Local 186 at that time. Small stages, you know, you show up, you load your gear on stage, you do your thing and you, you know, like that kind of trip, you know. And we had actually toured prior to that, but uh, 
we'd actually done a couple of DIY style tours, you know, playing in basements and, you know, stuff like that, you know, playing these like hole in the walls, basically. But now it's like the real world. You're in this like legit club with a real sound system and sound engineers and like sound guys and you know, merchandise people and techs. You know, and no one gives a fuck about you because you're just like some unknown band that no one, you're like on, you're you're getting paid the change basically. You know, like I think we were guaranteed like I think $150 to do those gigs, which, you know, (laughs) honestly for us at that era, I think, I think I I was excited in that band when we were given $50 to, to, to play a show. That to me was like, Oh man, look at all, you know, $50. We got paid for pros now, man. So so to, you know, to make to do 150, that was like a whole other world. That was a whole level up from making $50 a night. And you know, I the plan, staying in a hotel, that never even crossed my mind. That was never something we ever considered doing. Um you know, so oh yeah, we can make it on it. We can make it happen, man. 150, you know, 150. Yeah, there's four of us in the band. We got all the money for gas. You know, we can get eat at Denny's. You know, this is great, man. This is what the the you know the big time is like. So um, yeah, it was it was just interesting, man. You sh- you show up the first date. I think it was in Baltimore at Hammerjacks. I remember that because it was in a it was in a, uh, a a John Waters film. There's a scene in um. Uh, that movie with Kathleen Turner, man, they, they filmed some of it in Hammerjacks. And, uh, yeah, it's like this big fucking place. And, like, the Ramones are doing their sound check. And I'm like, fuck, man, that's like Johnny Ramone up there playing guitar. That's Joey Ramone singing, you know. Marky on drums. CJ, you know. It was the, it was the era when CJ was playing in the band. And, um, you know, he was like the guy that was closest to our age, even though he was still probably at least 10 years older than us, but he was like the, the kid in the band. And, um, yeah, the whole thing was just a trip. And, and I realized then, and that this is something that's always been consistent, is that, oh, yeah, in a big rock show, the headliner, they take all the time for sound check. You know, so, like, they did their thing, you know, and we got a line check and, you know, we played and um, it, it was it was like a very like eye opening kind of world, and that was like the first big legit stage I ever played on was with the was with the Ramones, you know. And and um, what's what's interesting too is is that was like I feel like I, I saw the Ramones when I was 1986 maybe. They played in Connecticut at this place called Tuxedos. I spoke with Malcolm about this from Trash American Style. He, remember, he was at that show as well. It was in Tuxedos, Danbury, Connecticut. And the room was like probably, I don't know, probably filled that place like 100 people. And then, yeah, so I mean, you know, the Ramones went through, the, they had their ups and downs, man, you know? And uh, that, I guess, was during a period when they were in their down, maybe. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, they, they were cool. Um, spoke with, hung out mostly with CJ. Those guys would do sound check, and then they would just disappear. 
and they would go away to probably their hotel and then they came back and did the set and then like the backstage world was like okay you guys got this corner over here and you can hang out there if you want here's a bag of chips oh yeah by the way we didn't have any hospitality either you know we didn't know what a rider was so we never put one together so we basically just got water at night and they might have given like you know a six pack of beer or something like that and cooler you know but yeah there was no um you know no snacks no meal there was nothing it was just fucking show up here's your you know play which i thought was like especially looking back working with like some agency like premier premier talent they probably should have directed us to do something knowing that we were these like fucking greenhorns you know and uh that would have been the first thing that would have made that a little bit easier. But we were just excited to be out there doing it, man. The hardest part, though, was definitely the shows we were used to playing. You know, the guy who did the show would also maybe offer you a place to stay. Or, you know, you would play with bands that, you know, would be like, hey, do you, can you, do you, or you guys need a place to stay. You can stay in my, my living room or whatever. You know, not that was not the case in with the Ramones. Like they weren't the promoter who put that show on was not going to let us stay at his house. That's for sure. Um, so we ended up just sleeping in the van, you know, every night, and uh, and that was fine too, man. Like I didn't give a fuck back then. I was young. I was a kid. You know, the whole the whole thing was just an adventure anyway. Um, yeah, we did. I think it was Richmond. We did. We finally did stay at someone's house. It was this uh, this this young lady that um, I think our drummer had had spoken to her, and and she offered to to put us up for the night. So so she was very nice to us. And I remember seeing her uh, multiple times during the life of that band. You know when we would roll through either Richmond or D.C. or something like that. So yeah. Anyway, that was yeah. It was pretty pretty tripped out. Um, one of the dates on that tour was in norfolk virginia and in that particular show the backstage it, it must have been like something that was like formerly like a military base or something like that because we it looked like a gigantic airplane hangar that we played in and um so the backstage was like it was like the stage and then there was the backstage and there was like no separate rooms or anything there was just like one you know big area so the Ramones couldn't escape us there. And I remember the tour manager, uh, you know, they had this gigantic spread of food and he came over to us and he's like, oh, guys, you know, you know, I know you guys are roughing it out here. It's like, uh, you know, we're just going to throw all this food out. So if you guys want to eat it, go ahead. So they had all this like insane, like catering there. So we just tore it up, made sandwiches, like, you know, took, took stuff with us, like bread, you know. Uh, everything we could take that we were able to take with us, we, we, I, I did, I took, you know, waters, like all that stuff, you know? And, uh, but that most importantly was when I actually met Joey Ramone and spoke with him and it was cool and he was, he was cool and he wasn't anything like I thought he would be, you know, I mean, you know, part of it is like he's, maybe he's playing a persona, you know, he's supposed to be this like really weird guy but he was he was a really cool guy man and 
of course, I was able to get a photograph with him, and that's a photo that I, I just I treasure it, man, because he's no longer with us. Is what you know, Johnny Ramone's no longer with us. You know, um, you know, Marky is still hanging in there, and he was the other guy I spoke to too, because he he actually would watch the bands play, and he would afterward he was like, yeah, you know, you guys do a good job, you know, and it's like, and that meant a lot to me, you know. I mean, it's fucking Marky Ramone. You know, you know, who am I to like uh, disagree with him? <laughs> the New York date, uh, I, act, I spoke with Johnny. And um, I always liked Johnny Ramone, man, because he looked like he had this real intense energy on stage, you know. And uh, yeah, it just, we, we didn't really have a conversation. It was more like he just spoke. And like talked kind of at me, you know, and it was, I think he was trying to get the fuck out of there too, honestly. But, you know, I was just like, oh yeah, hey man, you know, whatever. He probably had no idea who I was either. He probably thought I was like, I worked there or something, you know. I mean, I would be, I would be surprised if he, if he knew I was in the band that was opening for them, honestly. Sometimes that happens, man. I've heard stories of, um other, of people that I know that are in well-known bands that have opened for even bigger well-known bands and the bigger band has no idea who these people are that are on the, on these gigs with them. You know, I'm leaving the names out, but you, if I told you these names, you would know who I'm talking about, but I'm leaving that out. I don't want to embarrass anybody. But one of the interesting things that Johnny told me was there's that motorhead record, uh, orgasmatron. And there's a song on there called Ramones. And it's Motorhead doing a Ramon style song. So I asked um, Johnny about that. I was like, hey, you know, I love Motorhead. You know, the Ramones and Motorhead to me are like a classic bill. And, you know, Motorhead has that song, you know, Ramones. And Johnny told me that they've only ever played one time in their entire career at that point. And I, that blew me away. I couldn't believe that. And, um, so yeah, I, don't know. I figured that that would be something you'd be able to see a lot of is the Ramones and Motorhead playing together. But uh, yeah, yeah, memories, man. You know, right now it seems like that's all we got to work with is like the landscape that your mind creates. You know, I mean, things are a little bit better down here. Um, you know, I've been training Muay Thai. I took my third uh, COVID nineteen test, came back negative. The, the gym is open last, as of last week to limited capacity. I did not go to the regular classes, but I did my private. And tomorrow, I believe that I'm going to go and try it out. I'm going to go and see what it's like. And if I feel safe and, you know, I'm going to continue with it and start hammering it out every day, just like I normally do. I rescheduled my exam. Um, that would be next month on the on the twenty first, and then some of my coworkers were questioning me. They were like, "Oh, that's still happening." I'm like, uh, "As far as I know." So I went and I looked on the site, and the testing center is open. The date's booked. There's you have to wear a mask, and they have all these like uh, cover your ass notes on there about you know if you've tested positive within the last fourteen days. Ba ba ba. If you have. But I mean, I don't, I find it hard to believe that somebody's there checking anything. 
So, I mean, how, how, what, what could they do really? They're going to, you know, how could they really verify that? So, I didn't have a lot of confidence in those types of notes. It seems like, oh, well, we have to put this on here so we don't get sued. So, you know, we left it on you. Hey, you know. So I thought about it. And I thought that my office is not open. My office is two blocks away from this testing facility. Essentially, it's an office type of environment where I'd be sitting at a desk for eight hours wearing a mask breathing recirculated air because uh you know an hvac system is only 20 percent outside air and 80 percent of it is recirculated back through the unit so you know if you're in a room if someone's you know infected i imagine that uh you have a higher likelihood of of you also being infected because I do not have an N95 mask. I just have this cloth mask. So I slept on it. And I thought about what would be the most diligent thing to do for my own personal safety. And, you know, I've been fortunate enough to stay healthy through all this. And I decided that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reschedule. I mean, there is nothing more that I want is to just take this fucking thing and get it over with. You know, for better or for worse. So I found a new date, December 5th, December 5th. That's the next date that I can do this. And hopefully, uh, at least in New York area, the metro area, things will be hopefully be improving. You know, maybe things will be better by then. I don't know. The rest of the country I know is on fire still, but uh, we're still trending in a better, in a positive direction here. Maybe that's just wishful thinking. Maybe there's going to be a second wave in September and everything's going to be shut down again. And I never take this fucking thing. Who knows? But I'm just going with what I have right now. So, so yeah, that's, uh, that's about all that's going on these days. You know, probably going to get tested again after I train, you know, in my limited capacity, I want to see if I'm cool. At some point I want to see my parent, my parents who I haven't seen since February. And, uh, before I do that, I want to make sure that I'm safe, you know. Anyway, that's enough for today. I um, hope everyone's doing well. And, uh, you know, thanks for listening. And if you like horror movies, uh, you can check out Necromaniacs on all streaming services. It's a weekly show I do with Mike Scandato. And also, we have a new co-host, Jeff uh, Kashid, who used to be in ISIS and Palms, has joined us as our third co-host. And, uh, and of course, there's the Gimme Metal weekly show, Metal Matters, which is a variable smorgasbord of things. We got guests, we got shows that me and Randy Larson do, we got... Jay Bennett also comes on every now and then, and, and we talk about records and this and that. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. So if you like music, specifically heavy metal music, you can uh, check out Metal Matters. It's everywhere. It's on you know YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, you name it. Anyway, I hope everyone's good. And uh, this is... Uh, Easy action with friends of rock and roll.
to make. So, stress on rock and roll.